that lecture really got to me because I was like, you're talking about the number one killer. You told us how it's the number one killer. And you told us how children at the age of 10 are getting plaques. And you told us 50% of the people are going to get heart disease. But you said nothing about what we can do as future healthcare professionals to avoid this, to help people so they don't have to suffer from this. Well, hello there. And welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. I'm going to give you a name that I want for you to remember. Muzamil Ahmad. He's a journeyman. He is a journeyman and he went out into the world and he tried to find himself, this young man. And then while he's traveling, he has an epiphany. He wants to help people. So what does he do? He turns to medicine. He enrolls in medical school. And then one day he's sitting in class and then boom, another epiphany. He says to himself, wait a minute, this isn't right. After learning about plant-based nutrition on his own, he begins to pull studies showing that things like heart disease don't just have to be treated with stents and pills. He says that there is a healthier way. And so he takes this information that he has pulled and he sends it to the officials at this medical school. And lo and behold, they start listening. And now... There is a ton of hope for this particular medical school up in Canada because it is there that the minds are opening to the idea of preventative medicine and the power of plant-based nutrition. So you're going to hear this incredible story on the show today. Plus, Dr. Vanita Rahman and I, we are going to be sitting down and talking about a new study showing an alarming rise in the number of unfit children in the U.S. Less than half of adolescents in this country are now known as what is aerobically fit, meaning the sedentary lifestyles, the increasing amounts of fast food, all of that is cramping the body's ability to be healthy. And this is not a game. All of this is putting kids at higher risk for preventable chronic disease. The very diseases that are shortening the lifespans of adults. But Dr. Rahman, she's not just here with the study and the gloom and doom outlook. She's also here to explore ways to turn this unhealthy trend around. Get their young bodies back on track so that they can thrive as they head into adulthood. But let's start today with a man who is winning the food fight at his medical school, Mr. Musamil Ahmad. Time now to take a look at the future of medicine. And it is a future that is indeed bright. You know, all too often we can walk away from our own physicians feeling a little bit deflated, wondering, well, why is it that my doctor doesn't know much about diet? 
Well, my next guest is a doctor-to-be who is studying all about preventative medicine, knows about the connection between food and chronic disease and how important our food choices are to our health in the future. With that, we welcome Dr. Tabi Muzamil Ahmad to the show. Welcome, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I'm really thrilled that you are here too, because you have a very interesting story. As a matter of fact, as I understand it, your original career path wasn't even medicine. It wasn't even anything close to this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I don't have a science background. Um, I last time I had done science was grade 10, to be completely honest. And uh, grade 11 and 12, just the way things worked out at the time, I didn't know what I would be doing post high school. So I just did a lot of other courses. Um, and the only science I took was physics. Um, and then when I got into undergrad, I did a business degree. Um, I always have had an entrepreneurial mindset. So my parents were like, you have that mindset, why not just go study business and then you can figure it out. So I did a business degree. Did I like it? That's questionable. But um, my parents have this mentality that if you start something, you have to finish it. So I, I kept going and I finished the degree. And then somehow I ended up in oil and gas. I used to work at Shell. I uh, originally in the finance department and then I moved into marketing department, uh, mainly because I've always been interested in psychology. So when I was leaning towards quitting the corporate world, I got convinced into trying a different department and then I moved into marketing world. And it's interesting because I, I am super passionate about psychology, but marketing is pretty much psychology for evil. That's how I see it now. Because <laughs> I wasn't using psychology to help anyone. I was really, I was told that we're going to use psychology to basically make more money. Um, and the more I was in that field and the corporate world, the more I realized it wasn't the right fit for me because I've always had the mindset that I wanted to do something good in the world, something where I could change the world and make it better and help people, help people directly. Um, cause I really enjoy in, in people interaction and I just wasn't getting any of that. Like I was good at my job, but I wasn't feeling satisfied. I would come home and then be looking for hobbies to make myself satisfied. So a day just came where I was like, you know, I need to figure out what's the right fit for me at the time. I did not know what that was. Um, so my parents had instilled this mind, uh, this mindset in me that if you are switching careers or if you're switching anything, you need a backup plan. So I did uh, what I thought was the right thing to do at the time. I applied to law schools and I actually got in. So my plan was to go to law school and I, six months before my law school would have started, I quit my job and I decided to go backpacking around the world. During that trip is when I realized that I was literally going to go from one thing that I wasn't happy about to another that I wasn't going to be happy about. Um, I was just doing it because I needed a backup plan according to my parents. Um, so while traveling, I just kept meeting amazing people. And the more I realized during this interaction is how much I enjoy talking to people and just getting to know them. And a lot of the times, like I met random people who just opened up to me and I was like their new friend who was slash a therapist. Cause uh, while a lot of people are backpacking, a lot of them decide to backpack for similar reason as me to find themselves or whatever problems they were having. Um, so I would be helping these people. And that's when I realized that I need to do something that's related to health. And at the time I was thinking mental health. So I, when I got back from my trip, actually while I was in Thailand, I called my parents and I'm like, so I made up my mind that I'm not going to law school. <laughs> How did <laughs> that conversation go? <laughs> they did not take that well, but good thing I was all the way in Thailand. Um, and then I applied for my master's in psychology. I always wanted to live in the UK. It was one of those things I had. So I applied for my, 
bunch of master's programs in the UK and I got in at my top choice, um, University of Glasgow in Scotland. So I moved to Scotland for a bit and did my master's there. That was the first time I truly enjoyed studying. Um, I don't think ever before I had enjoyed studying. Um, and because I was loving what I was learning. And that's also when I started meeting a lot of psychologists and also a lot of doctors. And then the dilemma became, do I want to do medicine after this? Or do you want to do a PhD in psychology? And one thing I realized was I really like the fact that doctors are able to look at a patient and kind of help them from a more holistic point of view. Like it's not just mental health, it's everything. Any type of health problem they come in, as a doctor, you're trained for it. And I think that's why I decided um, medicine over psychology, because although I'm passionate about mental health, soon I realized I'm just passionate about health as a whole. So I had to actually go back to undergrad, take science courses to prepare for the MCAT. And then I applied. I'm from Canada, so I applied to Canadian med schools. And then I ended up getting into my provincial school, like the equivalent of your state school. And, um, and then I started med school. And as much as I love learning about the human body and how things can go wrong and what you can do to help, one thing that started nagging at me was the fact that the topic of preventative medicine was so little. It's very reactionary based. We're always talking about this is, gonna, this is what's going to go wrong. And it's always, always the way they say it is very definitive. This is what's going to go wrong in your body. And this is how you can help. Um, there have been a few courses, uh, sorry, a few lectures more on so public health and preventative medicine. But they do, these lectures are very limited and not given as much importance as the rest of the lectures. So that kind of really bothered me. Um, and then I, I, there was one particular lecture that was my breaking point was a lecture in the cardiology block. This amazing cardiologist, I shouted him, does amazing work. Um, he initially was talking about how children at the age of 10 have plaques in their arteries. And he said it in a very definitive manner, the way they say everything in medicine what, uh, is in, always in a definitive manner. Like our bodies are meant to break down and we're just trying to figure out how to keep them not from breaking down or just put, uh, putting medications in your body to, so when they do break down, what can you do? And that's how he said it. And that bothered me, but I was like, okay, whatever, kind of dismissed that in my mind. And then a few minutes later, he was talking about the prevalence of heart disease. And he was like, look at the person to your right, look at, to the person at your left. And now you look at two people. Um, one of those people are going to end up with heart disease because 50% of people get heart disease nowadays. And he just said that in a definitive manner and he just decided to move on with the treatment options. And that really got to me. That lecture really got to me because I was like, you're talking about the number one killer. You told us how it's the number one killer. And you told us how children at the age of 10 are getting plaques. And you told us 50% of the people are going to get heart disease, but you said nothing about what we can do as future healthcare professionals to avoid this, to help people so they don't have to suffer from this. Um, you just told us a bunch of medications and a bunch of surgeries that people can you know, use as an option, but that's it. So that really bothered me. And that's when I was like, okay, you know what? It's time for me to start doing my own research because like the way I'm being trained, I'm going to be just like, this cardiologist is that I'm going to think all these diseases are definitive and there's not much I can do. All I can do is just prescribe them with a bunch of medications. And if they don't work, then probably an open heart surgery. So. Wow. You, man, you had like the eat, pray, love experience, vegan edition, and then some man, Holy cow. That is quite the, 
the long and, and winding journey to bring you to where it is today. Uh, I will say, um, at your young age, I'm very impressed with the fact that you were able to key in so early in your uh, medical career. Uh, medical school career that uh, there was a definite need for preventative medicine. Like, why can't we prevent this from happening as opposed to just, you know, playing uh, defense and trying to treat the symptoms. So at what point then did you start to learn about the benefits of a plant-based diet, which we do know has been shown uh, time and again to really, really be super beneficial for heart health? Absolutely. Um, It was around the same time. Um, so what happened was I had a few of my own health issues that I was seeing a doctor for and the doctor kept running medical tests and my lab reports would always show up fine. So, um, so I'll go over a few things. Like I had migraines. I have always had migraines and I've always been told that it's genetic. Um, I had eczema. I had constant fatigue syndrome. That was my biggest problem because I was like, I'm only, so at that time, I think I was 27. I'm 29 now. So I think I was 27. Um, or 28. Uh, so I was like, that does not add up. I'm pretty young to be always tired. I get my sleep. I exercise at least five times a week. And what I thought was healthy is what I was eating. So I was like, what is with this? Like, why do I need three cups of coffee just to be able to study and go about my day or at times four? And I talked to my doctor and the doctor told me that it's probably undiagnosed depression. He told me that I should probably consider um, antidepressants. Um, and I was like, but I don't think it's that. I don't think I'm depressed. And I told him, I'm like, I have a master's in psychology. I, I'm not saying I know everything about myself, but I have a strong feeling that I'm not feeling depressed or down or something else. And he, he just put on a smirk on his face and he's like, no one wants to admit they're depressed. <laughs> and that really bothered me because um, that made me consider, am I depressed now? Because if he said it, I must be. And, but then I was not, I, I just didn't want to accept that just yet. I wanted to see if there was anything else. And like I said, that heart lecture had happened very recently as well. So the both things combined, I was like, it's time for me to start looking into this deeper. And, and I decided to just delve into it. I started reading literature when it came to heart disease, because that was a big one for me because of that lecture. I was like, it doesn't add up to me. And then I started looking into other things like migraines and things like that and constant fatigue. And the more I looked into it, the more I ended up finding all these uh, studies on blue zones and um, studies done in Loma Linda and Okinawa, as well as then I started coming across randomized controlled trials, uh, studies, you know, that have been done with, for people with diabetes and heart disease. And it was eye-opening. I was just like, what? I was like, it's right here. Like, why is this not in the medical curriculum? Like, it just did not make sense to me. Um, and... And that was, I think that was the moment I decided to go plant-based pretty much right away. And I did not like declare it openly just yet. I was like, I'm going to go plant-based if I'm out and about, maybe I'll like cheat, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go plant-based. But then soon after, literally, um, I can't remember exactly how long after, but pretty much soon after I ended up coming across Cowspiracy that led me to coming across Earthlings. And then I was like, you know what? I'm already convinced that I don't need any of the animal products for health reasons. I already don't eat junk food. So why even eat it for social reasons when I'm like convinced that it's not even ethically right or environmentally good? So that's when I decided to go completely vegan. 
you also look like let's talk about another aspect of this you also look like a, a very athletic guy and i know following you on instagram you know we've seen shots of you working out in the gym clearly you got some muscles on you uh, was there any concern that let's just go with the big question that always gets asked you weren't going to get enough protein so did that question where do i get my protein ever enter your mind absolutely because um i remember having a discussion with my brother um a year before that, it, it was me who said uh, vegetarians only build muscle because of all the supplements they take. Like I had said it. So obviously, I was very concerned about that. Um, and I think I started, I just started Googling. I'm like, are there any vegan bodybuilders? Uh, that's like was something I was curious about. And like, honestly, all it took was a search. And then I ended up coming across so many. Nima Delgado, Derek Simnett, Tori Washington, and the list goes on. And I was like, okay. That's good. And then I started looking at literature. I was like, okay, is there literature to back this up? And when I found how little protein we actually need compared to the amount I was consuming, that was also eye-opening. So I feel like it was like a domino effect. The more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. And, and then from there on, um, then I was like, not only convinced, I was like, I need to do something about raising this awareness to other peers in my class, as well as to the medical staff in my school. Because I'm like, if I know this now, even if I can convince one out of 20 people, that will be a huge change for the future patients. So, what were those conversations like uh, with the uh, teachers and, and staff there at your medical school? Were they open to it or was there a little bit of resistance? Because in a lot of communities, the whole idea of a plant-based diet is it's really just now kind of bubbling up to the surface and can still have uh, carry a little bit of a taboo with it. Right. And there was definitely resistance um, among, among my peers and the medical staff. One thing that I did was, so a lot of the times when medical doctors are teaching nutrition, like they'll throw in one slide from nutrition here and there. I feel like a lot of the times they haven't done the research and it's based on whatever they know. And they sometimes have evidence, sometimes they don't have a reference. And I would take that lecture and I would type up a huge email with a bunch of references because things were said like in one lecture that vegans don't live that long. I'm not even sure how that doctor got that information um, because it, the opposite's been found. Another one was like vegans have more mental health problems or they don't get these specific nutrients or um, this specific diet. I don't remember which one they said was the best for your heart health and things like that. And then I would just every time something like that was mentioned, I would type up a huge email, emailing the professor and CCing the associate dean to the email just for a trail. And I would put in all my references and then that started like creating a momentum because every time the Dean was getting that email, she was like, Hmm, okay, let me look at these references. And that kept happening. Like I, she got a lot of emails from me from I would be emailing different professors in different blocks and she would get that email. And then soon after I was like, uh, during this time, I was like, okay, you know what? This is too slow for me. So I was like, I want to create a club because we don't have any nutrition club in my med school. So I just went up to, I had actually missed the deadline for creating a club, but I went to the associate dean, the same one, and I was like, hey, you know I'm very evidence-based, um, and I send you references all the time, and luckily for us, we have the Canadian Food Guide, which is very plant-based friendly compared to the American one. So I also showed her that, I went in detail with her, and I was like, I really want to create this club. Can I, like, not only did I want her approval i almost like wanted her blessing because if i had her to back me up then any student that comes up against it i can be like please take it to the associate dean because i've shown her my work 
So, and then she was convinced she's like, do it. Um, and then I was able to get funding and I was able to get approval. And that kind of started another domino effect because then I started holding events with dietitian and uh, we also showed game changers and things like that. And then more and more students were like, huh, okay, maybe the things we thought weren't, aren't as accurate. And now a lot of people in my class have gone plant-based um, since that club started, which has been amazing. And the momentum's just building. That's how I got the approval to start a podcast. Um, and yeah, luckily a lot of professors have emailed me back saying, wow, we did not know this, but thank you for sharing this with us. And that's, that's so huge that you're actually helping to teach the teachers. Um, there's a very prominent doctor who once told me, you know, kind of that a lot of doctors get their nutrition advice the same way that most of us do. And that's through blogs and magazines and in the newspaper or the radio, you know, wherever, basically any place except for a medical journal. Um, and you're, you're really fighting to change that. So I think that that's really great. And I will also commend the professors for actually taking the time to look at this research. And I, I'm hoping that they're starting to implement that in the curriculum. Um, so, okay, not all, I won't say that all of the professors have looked at it. Some just ignore my email, which I expected. Uh, some look at it and then they say something like, okay, that's good to know, but I don't think my, my patient is going to be willing to make a change, which kind of bothers me that they kind of make that decision for the patient. But there are a lot of other professors who are like, okay, let me look into this more. Um, and when it comes to medical curriculum, so a year ago, I did talk to the same associate dean um, and I was like, the medical curriculum needs to change. And then she had told me, you know what? Um, you're doing good work. How about next summer? So this current summer, how about we sit down and I'll create a job for you and you can actually go through the entire curriculum and pull out all the um, issues that are in the medical curriculum when it comes to nutrition and then we can fix them. And then it just happened so that um, I ended up meeting um, uh, Cass Warbeck. She is the co-host of my podcast and she just happened to have more time this summer. So I was like, I already have too much going on. And then she was like, I would love to do this project because she's also plant-based and she's also uh, as passionate about nutrition. So she's actually doing that right now. She is going through literally all the lectures and that have mentioned nutrition, anything wrong with it. She's taking that out. She's adding proper information. And like, you know, when it comes to meat or eating plant-based or dairy, eggs or anything, and she's going through that right now. And if all the changes she's recommending get implemented, our medical curriculum is going to be a lot more plant-based. You know, it just dawns on me that, as you said, the, the Canadian nutritional guidelines are very much more so plant-based friendly than they are here in America. Um, and, and it is kind of surprising now that I think about it to hear you say how little info there, there is in the med school curriculum about plant-based diets. So, you know, do you really feel like you're, you're kind of laying some significant groundwork to really bring in this new era? I hope so, because my goal is to be able to do this on a higher level, on a more national level. That's kind of my goal, is I want to be able to implement or have these changes be implemented at all Canadian med schools. Because like you said, the research is out there. I don't think, um, if people look at it, like it's hard not to be convinced. But the problem is the medical curriculum's been the same way for a very long time. And it stays that way. And no one's going through the medical curriculum and adding new knowledge when it comes to nutrition, mainly because most of the doctors are not interested in it. I think that's the problem. They're interested in the most latest surgery that came out or the most latest drug that came out. And that's the article they're reading. 
and they just assume the dietary articles uh, don't exist. And I think if people like myself and Cass and other people who are interested in this start pushing for it and show the evidence, then it's hard for medical um, staff, you know, that are running the medical schools to disagree with it because it's really hard to find evidence that's against it. And the ones that are kind of embracing this idea of preventative medicine, are they really kind of getting on board with that and really like the idea of going on the offense? I'll put it in sports parlance, going on the offense as opposed to playing defense, making sure that these chronic conditions arise with far less frequency than they are right now, as opposed to defense, which would be wait for them to come and then do your best to treat them with medication. Um, when it comes to, are you talking about when it comes to students or professors? Professors by and large. Professors. Um, I, well, that's why we're making the changes or we're recommending the changes right now. And hopefully the Dean is able to implement, get them implemented. Um, the problem is even when it comes to professors who are generally interested in preventative medicine, they're also, they are very conscious about what they want to recommend to the patient. Not because the evidence is not there, but because once again, they believe the patients are not going to follow. So they make that assumption. And I had that discussion with one of the doctors who's really big in preventative medicine. His research is in it. And I told him, I'm like, okay, you're recommending these diets. You're recommending the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet. Great. But plant-based diets seem to be doing better. So why aren't you recommending that? And his answer was, that's just taking it too extreme. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like if the evidence is there, when it comes to drugs, don't you recommend, like you kind of go over different types of drugs and, and say the pros and cons and let the patient decide. So why is it any different that we're not going over different dietary options? We're like, okay, plant-based might be the best option. But if that's too extreme for you, then maybe you can do a Mediterranean. Instead of just recommending Mediterranean, you're almost like making that decision for them. So I had that discussion. I'm not the... The professor said he's going to think about it. I'm not sure what he in the end decided, um, but that was his concern that patients are not going to follow. When it comes to medical students, I've had a lot of medical students who were initially not interested, who would pull up articles and send them to me, and then I would find a bunch of flaws. Like I would be like, okay, you sent me an article about this uh, you know, on eggs, but did you notice it's funded by the egg industry? Things like that that a lot of medical students don't always look at, and then they'll just send me an article to debate which i don't mind i don't mind debating um but then a lot of these medical students are now messaging me two of my really close friends just yesterday messaged me who before probably would not have gone plant-based saying that hey we recently decided to go plant-based and they don't even know each other or they're not close friends with each other so i think the fact that i'm pushing for this and i'm not like you know um, i'm dedicated and not taking a step back and being like okay this is not working i'm gonna give up these same medical students who were really skeptical are starting to notice that and now starting to really look at, like if I pick a post on Instagram or if I'm posting an episode on the podcast with a doctor or a dietitian, they're like, okay, um, maybe let's just go check it out. Maybe it's wrong, but let's go check it out. And then they end up getting convinced. So I think for any other medical student who's doing this, I recommend like not giving up. That's the biggest thing. Just keep going until people eventually start coming around. I want to kind of combine all of your backgrounds here, uh, the business, the marketing, the psychology, now medicine, and let's talk about the marketing of fast food. 
Um, how do we, as people who are interested in presenting healthier options and pushing back against this, how do we counter these powerful marketing messages when you know that they are, I mean, they are really efficient at what it is that they're, they're trying to do as far as getting their product across. What would be your recommendation as somebody who does have that marketing background, that business background, the psychology, all of it, man, you seem like a, a good fit to try to fight this, man. Thanks. Um, well, the what the marketers do is actually really smart like they even look at things like which item they're going to put on top of another item and where exactly is that going to go and color scheme and everything just to catch people's eyes and they grab it um i think the most important thing is educating the patient about what the marketers are doing i think that is huge because i've been doing that with a lot of my own family members because i'm like they're like oh my god that looks so good i saw it in the commercial and i was like okay they did that exactly so you think like this and then i'll start breaking it down for them and they'll be like you just ruined the burger for us i'm like but that's the point now (laughs) (laughs) and then a lot of them like once you teach them that those skills like being critical of the marketing and what exactly the marketers are thinking when they're doing this then they start critically thinking themselves because now they have a bit of that skill set to do it so i think it's really important to also kind of like I don't know who the best person would that be because doctors have very limited time. So, but within that clinic, someone to go over the patient about this is what the marketers do. This is how you, every time you see that, the reaction in your brain is like, I want to go buy that or I want to go eat that. And that skill needs to be developed. And then another thing is also like teaching people how to make delicious foods. Cause a lot of people, look at fast food and it's delicious. And then they look at plant-based options in their mind and they're like, oh, I'm just going to eat um, just salad or just like, you know, uh, lentil and rice. But it's like, no, you can do so much with plant-based foods and so many spices, you can make it delicious. And I think that's really important as well is to attract people to want to eat more plant-based, um, which is kind of what I do. I post a lot of healthy recipes where I make them really colorful and try to make it, take a good picture so then, and a lot of plant-based doctors do that. Um, it's just, I think that itself is marketing because you're marketing for plant-based diet. What about countering that skepticism right up front? Because I know that when I try to raise um, the point of industry-funded studies, you were just talking about the egg industry and then talking about, you, you were just talking about, you know, the product placement and the color schemes and things like that. Things that people really, they don't even think about. It's not even anywhere in their their logic how do you kind of counter that skepticism when you first broach these conversations with somebody for the first time i think it doesn't happen overnight i think it requires multiple conversations and i'm saying this because i was the same if someone tried to dump all the information on me the first day i probably would have not absorbed everything and i think that's how it is with a lot of people too um we who are more educated sometimes we're so passionate you want to tell everything and the listener might not be ready for it and might not be able to absorb everything you're saying. So I think the trick is to always be there when they have all their questions. So you can keep answering their questions as they come. Uh, and also giving them a bit of small information here and there. So like, for example, the egg industry thing, my friend sent it to me. And then he was like, okay, what about this? And I was like, okay, well, first of all, it's funded by the egg industry. And then that is a good uh, point to bring up because a lot of people are used to industry-funded studies because in medicine, a lot of the studies are funded by the drug companies. 
So they don't always think about that, right? So when they're reading nutritional studies, they don't think about it because they're not thinking about it when they're reading the medical studies. But when we are looking at nutritional studies, it's really important because egg industry is never going to release an article saying eggs are bad. Um, so, and that is really important to teach other medical students um, because we're taught how to read studies, but there's a lot of things that we're not taught when it comes to nutritional studies. Like, you know, another huge thing is what are you comparing against? Because um, that can be tricky. And a lot of plantist doctors do a really good job at talking about how comparing four eggs with six eggs is probably not going to show you much. So always look at what it's being compared to. And so I always try to do this where I try to give them tips here in, uh, I guess, short conversations with few tips. And then I let them absorb that. And then they'll think of a bunch more questions or a lot more skepticism. They'll come back to me and I'll be like, okay, let's go through this. And few conversations down the road, they'll be like, okay, you know what? Like, maybe you're right. And that seems to be working for me when it comes to other medical students. So you are now a third year medical student. How many more years do you have? So I'm starting my third year. So I have two more years. Okay. And have you thought about what it is that you want to do once you, once you graduate? I mean, what is the master plan? I mean, you, you, you're definitely what I would call a journeyman in life and, you know, open to all experiences and, you know, whichever way the wind blows. And that's fantastic because it's made you the person who you are today. But what do you see in the future for yourself as a practicing doctor? So initially, I was thinking about all these fancy fields like cardiology, gastroenterology. And then in the end, I decided that I'm not going to do any of them. I think I'm going to focus most likely on family medicine and then create a preventative lifestyle medicine focused clinic that I also wanted to be multidisciplinary so I can have dietitian there and a lot of other healthcare professionals there so we can work as a team. Because honestly, like if I'm doing my job properly, most likely I won't need to refer anyone to a cardiologist. So, and that's kind of my goal. It's like, I don't rather not be a cardiologist and then help people when people are referred to me because they're most likely going to be referred to me when they're already really sick. So I want to be in that preventative role and I want to, you know, focus on lifestyle. And if someone's cholesterol is starting to go up, if they are starting to become hypertensive. So in those beginning stages, I want to have very serious conversations with my parents, uh, with my patients and my parents. But, <laughs> um, and so that's kind of my goal is to have a multidisciplinary lifestyle medicine focused uh, practice. And I also have this plan where I don't know how I plan on implementing it, but more like a chronic disease rehab center, um, similar to like, a, you know, um, substance use uh, rehab center. So where people with chronic disease can come in and then, cause we don't have that in Canada yet. Um, so can come in and then stay there for a week or two and then you help them change everything around. So hopefully when they go back, they have the skill sets they need to, to be, to get healthier. Oh man, you are one to keep an eye on. I love that idea real quick as we wrap up. I mean, you mentioned that you had migraines and acne and eczema and, and fatigue. How are all of those things doing right now? Um, so in the year and a half, I've not had, I've had one migraine and that was, that had to do with the fact that I was eating really poorly. I was eating a lot of vegan junk food that week. So I'm not sure if that was the reason, but besides I've not had migraines, my acne, I used to get these big cystic acnes that I have not gotten even once. I get uh, pimple here and there if I eat oily food. So I noticed that oils are not good for my skin either, personally speaking. So if I stay oil free, my, st my skin stays acne free. Um, and honestly, I don't even need coffee anymore. If I drink coffee, it's mostly decaf. 
and um, and once in a blue moon I'll drink coffee. But the best thing has been the fact that I don't have the chronic fatigue. I can go work out and can go for a run the same day and still be energized. So overall, I feel a lot better than I ever did before. Talk to me about the Plant Prescription Podcast. This is new and exciting. Yeah, so that, uh, again, it was the same reason that I started the uh, club. I started this because although there are great other um, plant-based podcasts, I don't think there's any that's run by medical students. And my aim has been to bring this awareness to other medical students as well as the general Canadian public. So I had to get funding and approval for it from the medical school. And now I've been able to bring in a lot of amazing plant-based doctors and uh, Brenda Davis, who is a Canadian registered dietitian who has spoken around the world and has written 12 books and a lot of other uh, healthcare professionals, as well as people with personal journeys that people can really hear and, you know, relate to like Adam Sud, um, Sam Mara, and a lot of other people who have had their own journeys and gotten better. So, and I've been, getting amazing feedback like my co-host and I both get positive feedback that a lot of medical students have decided to go plant-based because of the podcast so so far it's been great man that's awesome and you mentioned the documentary the game changers my friend I need to tell you that you are a game changer the the world needs more students like you my friend you are truly going to do big big things thank you so much Muzamil Ahmad, thank you so very much. Give him a follow on Instagram at dr.plantbased. By the way, amazing Instagram handle. The fact that you were able to lock down Dr. Plantbased is just, I mean, that's just extraordinary. That's a keeper. I plan on keeping that for many years to come. So, oh. yeah, lucky there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So the Plant Prescription Podcast, go check that out. We've put a link to that in the episode notes. Thank you so very much, Muzamil. Thank you so much for having me. How great is it that the powers that be are listening to Musamil? You know, so often we get shut down when presenting an idea that's considered to be outside the box. It's different. But not in this case, not at that school. And wouldn't it be great if other schools would do the same? That is a big part of what we're working on here at the Physicians Committee. And also, what Brooklyn Palmer is doing down in Texas at her medical school. You know her. She's been on the show a couple of times. She's on Instagram at Beats by Brooke. Brooklyn is straight up studying culinary medicine. Culinary medicine is an actual class at her school. So you think about that, and then you realize that the winds of change are blowing. And they are blowing at a critical time for the youngest minds because, frankly, kids are not as healthy as they used to be. Now, you can chalk that up to video games and smartphones and the pandemic and fast food. But a new report from the American Heart Association finds only 40% of kids between the ages of 12 and 15 are aerobically fit. And 75% of their day is spent being sedentary. And because of this, cardiorespiratory fitness has been in the decline for years. At the same time, childhood obesity rates have been climbing. So this report says that poor aerobic fitness puts children at higher risk for heart disease, 
high blood pressure, and type 2 diabetes. So what can be done to help right this sinking ship? For that, I spoke with Dr. Vanita Ramad recently on The Exam Room Live. Dr. Ramon, appreciate you joining us. This is an important topic here. 60% of adolescents lack healthy cardiorespiratory fitness. I mean, that's more than half. That, that to me is really, really alarming. This is serious. You know, as you said, 40% of youth ages 12 through 15 years have poor cardiorespiratory fitness. So what is cardiorespiratory fitness? This is um, how well our cardiovascular system and our lungs can adapt to exercise, how well they can cope. And only 40% of our youth have it. And if you think about it, this is the group that's nearing their peak athletic performance, right? They're close to that age where we see Olympians, um, you know, who are often teenagers or in their early 20s. So this is a serious problem. And the report says there are many reasons this could be going on. Um, Clearly, sedentary lifestyle is playing a role. As you pointed out, Chuck, 75% of an average 15-year-old's waking time is spent being sedentary. That used to be seven hours in 2003. It's now 8.2 hours. So, And if you couple that with what's going on with this pandemic, where kids are moving even less, we've gone from in-school learning, where at the very least they were moving from classroom to classroom, they are now sitting at home in front of a monitor. And um, it's so much easier to be distracted by video games or other things. And with the advent of video games, social media, and now with virtual learning, their activity levels have gone way, way down. And then for youth, a key part of staying fit is youth sports, which have been suspended for the most part, you know, whether it's um, soccer or track or swimming or Um, martial arts, everything has come to a grinding halt and kids are doing it virtually, which we know just isn't as effective for them. So it's like a perfect storm. And I fear things will get worse with the pandemic. Let's talk about food specifically here. You know, we, we think about somebody who's out of shape, even an adult, they haven't exercised in a while, their diet has been poor. But what role specifically does food play? Is there a ratio between the damage that's done by the diet versus just being sedentary? Yeah, so one of the risk factors for having poor cardiorespiratory fitness is obesity. And we know that obesity is linked with diet most commonly. And in fact, there was um, right along this, another report published by the CDC showed that over one third of children are consuming fast food on a daily basis. Um, And the number is exactly 36.3% of children Um, are consuming fast food on a daily basis. And we know fast food is problematic because it's very processed. It generally tends to be high in animal-based foods. It's low in fiber. It's calorically dense. It's high in fat, high in cholesterol, and um, it's high in sodium. So again, this perfect storm of food that is readily available, but not necessarily nutritious. So it's all playing a role in this. Yeah, and I I believe that it's something like uh, 20% of the average child's calories now comes from fast food, uh, which I believe they they define as burgers and fries and and even pizza. I mean, one out of every five calories coming from fast food, that is, uh, again, nutritionally unacceptable. Yeah, so actually, I can share some more numbers with you about that. Um, So 
For children and adolescents, on average, 14% of their calories are coming from fast food. And um, what's really interesting is if we look at the breakdown, um, so for 11% of children, 25% of their daily calories are coming from fast food. And for 14% um, of children, 25 to 45% of their daily calories are coming from fast food. And then for 11%, 45% or more of their daily calories are coming from fast food. So really startling numbers. And again, fast food is convenient. It, um, it can seem like an ideal option because it may be less expensive, but it's also not nutritious. High in fat, high in calories, low in fiber, high in sodium, just the opposite of what we want. I promise you, we're, we're going to get to some tips on how to right this ship in just a second. But I also want to talk about the increased risk for chronic disease that kids are facing, obviously leading into adulthood. But I believe that we've also discussed on this show recently, you know, that the fact that we are seeing more cases of things like heart disease and high blood pressure and diabetes in children as well now. Yeah, so Chuck, nearly one out of every 10 children has elevated levels of blood pressure. And these diseases like type two diabetes, high cholesterol levels, high blood pressure that we used to typically see in middle-aged adults, we're seeing in younger adults and even in children because our diet has changed so much. It's predominantly animal-based food, it's high in fat, it's high in calories, it's low in nutrients. So this is all contributing to the decline of health in our youth and we really need to correct this quickly. Let's talk about the good side of things. Not, not, there's no silver lining here, honestly, but if there is, it would be the fact that we have the ability to correct this wrong. We can, mm -hmm. we can make improvements here because I know that if you, if you have good aerobic fitness, you're eating better, you're taking better care of yourself. Well, you're going to do better in school. You're going to get better grades. Your mental health is going to improve. And then also super important for teenagers is the fact that you're just going to have a higher sense of self-worth mm -hmm. at a time when self-confidence is really at a premium. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there have been additional reports showing that nearly one out of four children um, or adolescents have contemplated um, suicide. Um, it, it's really staggering how this is taking a very important toll on our mental health. So really important to tackle this. And as you said, regular exercise, not only good for the heart and lungs, but it's good for our brain. We feel better. We feel more energized, more empowered, improves our mood. So it's really important that we teach our kids the importance of exercise and eating well now while they're forming lifelong habits. All right. Well, let's get some spe uh, specific tips out there so that we can teach them and the lessons will stick. What would you recommend? Well, you know, I think right now is a really challenging time for parents and children alike. If you think about it, the average child would walk to a bus stop. They would walk around in their school. They would have gym or recess where they would exercise. They would have youth sports and all of that is now gone for a lot of children. So we as parents really need to set some structure, you know, saying, you, the recommendations are for teenagers, especially they need an hour of vigorous activity every day, vigorous physical activity. So telling your teenager or younger child an hour of exercise is crucial. It needs to be built into their day, whether it's jogging or soccer or whatever it is they can do or riding their bike. Um, they need to get out there and do it. They need the exercise. They need the sunshine. They need the fresh air and they need that vitamin D. And then 
another important thing is, and for younger kids, um, you know, they do really well with free play, either in a playground, which is limited now, or with their neighborhood friends, which may also be limited, but something to get the whole family moving, whether it's a family bike ride or just a walk in your neighborhood or taking the dog for a walk, anything, building it in to your lifestyle is key, you know, working on the yard, pulling out the weeds, kids can do all that. And the other key to this is feeding our kids well. Um, We know that the average child doesn't consume a single serving of fruits a day, and we really need to have that be closer to three to five servings. So serving our kids healthy food is paramount, serving them fruits, vegetables, legumes, grains. These are ingredients that are sorely lacking in the average American diet, especially for kids. And we need to reverse this because what they eat now is what they will continue to eat. So we need to really bring those foods in to their diet. Kind of underscores the importance of eating fiber at such a young age as well. It's not just a grown-up's nutrient. Yeah, absolutely. Kids, kids have all sorts of problems with low fiber intake. They'll often develop constipation, severe pain, a fear of going to the bathroom because it's uncomfortable. So these are real issues. It's not just um, trivial. Fiber is oh so important. And, you know, as far as helping kids eat well, it's really important to Um, As parents, we set the example. So lead by example, what we eat, they will eat and then include them, include them in the trips to the grocery store, include them in food preparation, include them in setting up the table. The more they buy into the process, the more they invest into it, the more likely they are to enjoy that um, plate of vegetables when you serve them. And bottom line, before we open up the doctor's mailbag, uh, right or wrong here, we already have the tools in our toolbox to fix what's wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. You know, these luckily, if there's any silver lining, these are these are issues of lifestyle. So we can control this. This isn't necessarily all genetic. We can change our exercise habits. We can change our diet. So this is something we can definitely impact today, starting right now, even. Giddy up. All right. Time to open up the doctor's mailbag here and answer your health and nutrition questions. Dr. Rahman, I've got two for you today. The first one comes to us from Adam on YouTube. We were talking about fast food, but Adam here wants to know what are some of your top recommended vegan fast food options, if any, to eat while on the road? Yeah. So, you know, really important question. So let's be clear. Um, You know, a fast food is only as healthy as what's in it. So not everything that's fast and quick is unhealthy. One of my favorite places um, is going to Subway. They have whole grain bread. They have tons of fresh veggies and you can load them up with veggies. Um, they, they do have a veggie patty, but I do want to let our listeners know those are not vegan. They do have some animal products in them. I believe they have eggs. So um, avoid that, but you can load it up with veggies. You can put maybe a little bit of avocado, salt, and pepper on it, and it's amazing. I love that. Very light and easy. Then there are other places like Chipotle is a good option. You can get rice with beans. They have several types of beans, and I believe they're all plant-based, and you can load it up with grilled veggies. Um, you know, there I would recommend salsa. I would avoid the guacamole or sour cream, which adds a lot of fat and you're good to go, there's your um, power plate right there. You've got a grain, you've got veggies, you've got legumes, and it's wonderful. And then similarly, there are other options like Panera, which is not quite fast food, but they do have options that are uh, plant-based. They even have a vegan menu you can look at. And um, I could go on and on about all these recipes. (laughs) 
a common one for kids is pizza. You know, kids like pizza, but um, you can stop at your local fast food pizza restaurant to do a carry out. Um, you can just order the pizza with sauce, tons of veggies, skip the cheese, and I bet it'll taste really good. So try some of those things. No doubt. And uh, really quickly, uh, if you could get to this one, an important one from Edith, another opposite end of the age spectrum here. Uh, do the same genes that make a woman prone to breast cancer also make her more likely to get ovarian cancer? Do you know? So there is some commonality there. We know women who carry the BRCA genes, that's a breast cancer gene, they are at risk not only for breast cancer, but also for ovarian cancer. So we think there is some correlation between the two. And again, we know what works well for breast cancer is um, prevention is eating a plant-based diet, regular exercise, not smoking, avoiding alcohol. And I would recommend the same for uh, most cancer prevention, including ovarian cancer. That conversation was from the exam room live, and you can join us for that Monday through Friday at noon Eastern over on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page or on their YouTube channel. Links to both are in the episode notes. I want to think back to when I was younger and in high school and being put on those high blood pressure pills at such a young age. And I remember going to the doctor's office and for me, it was almost a game. Like how high can that number possibly be? It was always around 180, 90, over a hundred, somewhere in that ballpark. And the higher it went, the happier for some reason I became, but that terrified my mom she was horrified by this and very concerned but I will also never forget the day that I was put on those pills and how angry I became and I don't know that it was the reality that maybe this wasn't such a game anymore and this was my real health my life that was on the line I don't know the anger kind of subsided because after I left that appointment that day, I went to the drive-thru and loaded up on my typical Taco Bell binge fest, went right back to my old eating habits. And so maybe at that young age, even though you know you're kind of getting smacked with reality a little bit in the face in cases like that, you're still not mature enough to really grasp the full ramifications of what is happening there. And so the question then becomes, well, is it incumbent upon the parents to take care of that? Or should something more drastic be done? Think about this. Down in Mexico, for the second time in as many weeks, a state there has banned the sale of junk food to minors. We talked about this on a show not that long ago. So this is the second time in as many weeks. And the move does come amid growing concerns about the risk of serious infection of COVID-19 among those who are in poor health. And so lawmakers in the state of Tabasco voted by a count of 22 to 8 to pass a measure that outlaws the sale of things like chips and candy and soda to anyone under the age of 18. It also bans vending machines from schools. 
Now, the exact details of this are still being ironed out how it will be implemented, but public health officials are definitely calling this a major win at a time when three out of four Mexicans are considered to be overweight and one out of three are morbidly obese. And obviously, we know that chronic illness that has been tied to obesity has been shown to increase the risk of having a severe infection of COVID-19. So is that the answer to go as far as to outright ban the sale of junk food to minors? Seems like a radical step, but you think about the fact that tobacco was not always restricted to minors. And now it is. And nobody questions the fact that tobacco is bad for your health. The funny thing is, I don't think that anybody is really questioning the fact that potato chips and Snickers bars and things like that are bad for your health. But for whatever reason, they're just not put in that same category or there's just not that same health urgency behind them as there is with a pack of cigarettes something to think about. If you would like to make an appointment to visit with any one of the plant-based doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center who do know about the link between food and health and the importance of nutrition, you can do that right now. You can make an appointment at the Barnard Medical Center where prevention is in fact the best medicine. And it's a telemedicine appointment at that. If you live in any one of the following states, Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, or in the nation's capital of Washington, D.C. You can make that appointment today by visiting barnardmedical.org or by calling 202-527-7500. A lot of ground covered. I hope that in the future, Dr. Musamil Ahmad will be at the Barnard Medical Center. He has a very bright future ahead of him. So I appreciate him taking the time to join us here today, as well as a big debt of gratitude to Dr. Vanita Rahman. And don't forget to subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcast from. And when you do, please leave that five-star rating. On behalf of everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thanks so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe, take a stand, and keep it plant-based. <laughs>